0: The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste.
1: Welcome, this is the Irish Times Book Club Podcast with me, Martin Doyle. Before we get started, the Irish Times has teamed up with Green and Blacks to give our listeners the chance to win a hamper filled with delicious products from their new velvet range, ideal for those indulgent moments. The Velvet Edition of Chocolate Bars offer a variety of signature flavours for all tastes in a smooth, velvety finish. Dark chocolate, but not as you know it. The Velvet Fruit pouches offer a completely new taste in chocolate, a luxurious melange of fruit and dark chocolate in two tempting flavours. Carefully crafted by expert taste specialists, Green and Blacks invite you to unwind and savour every bite while bringing your taste buds on a heavenly journey. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks. To be in with a chance of winning one of these delicious hampers, go to irishtimes.com forward slash Green and Blacks. On this podcast, I talk to author Joseph O'Connor about his latest novel, Shadow Play, the story of the relationship between Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, and Henry Irving and Ellen Terry, the most famous actors of the Victorian era. We also explore how the novel traces the origin story of Dracula, Stoker's masterpiece. Later, we discuss O'Connor's own career, from his debut Cowboys and Indians to his breakthrough novel Star of the Sea, one of the first novels to be championed by the Richard and Judy book club. So, Joe, we were joking earlier this morning. I dug out a couple of old interviews you certainly uh, did. with yourself. Uh, one from old,
0: old photographs, much, much worse. <laughs> I Some, didn't mind the interviews. Huh? You included a photograph taken of me in London in, I think, 1989. Um, It was in a book that was published in 1991, but the photo was taken in 1989. Um, Me in a leather jacket and my Elvis Costello sunglasses, Mm -hmm. which I thought at the time was just the height of cool. I think I said
1: to you, when I was young, my dad covered match reports for the local football team, Town Swifts, and um, they were printed in the Banbridge Chronicle, and he kept them pasted into just a... a magazine, whatever, and I used to love leafing through them. So then when I became a journalist, I kept a lot of my clippings thinking that when I had kids and when they were a little bit older, one day they would appreciate them and I would stumble across them (laughs) leafing through admiringly and instead um, I was chastened to discover that they looked in my study and saw all these things and called me a hoarder. So.
0: (laughs) Lawrence Town Swifts mm-hmm. is a magical name, isn't a it? A name to conjure with. Um, um, I remember keeping stuff as well in boxes because at the time, just degenerating very rapidly into two old guys <laughs> talking about the way things were much better back in the day. But at the time, it was pre-internet, so everybody mm-hmm. kept their cuttings. So mm-hmm. I, ha- I have, like, rejection letters and... Um, contracts and drafts of stuff in boxes mouldering away up in the attic. My favourite one is um, I think it was the first time I was ever in a publisher's office Um, It was from Faber and Faber the renowned, esteemed firm in London and I had sent them a draft of my first novel, which which wasn't very good, it was never published in the end but a, a, a kind editor had decided to write and explain why she didn't like the book, so she she spent a page and a half doing that, and then went on to say, and you know, thinking about it a bit more completely, you know, we don't really see you as a writer, you know, there's just a lot of, many are called, a few are chosen, and you know, it's, it's not the worst thing we've ever read, but if I were you, just candidly, you know, person to person, I would advise you, wow. maybe think about doing something else with your life. So I remember the day that arrived to my little flat in Lewisham, in rainy southeast London, mm. and um, that hurt. I can but I, imagine. I still it have hurt, that yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah.
1: Wow. Um, yeah. I think a second draft of that letter might have been advised. <laughs> Um, yeah. So that didn't make it to the the recent Faber, uh, the history of Faber. You didn't buy a copy, now?
0: <laughs> no. Oh, well, you know, this uh, it was probably better. Actually, maybe it wasn't better than completely ignoring me. It would have been nicer just to be completely ignored.
1: I was going to say that's a pretty terrible letter to send anybody now, to yeah. be quite honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you've proven them wrong, of
0: course. Mm. Thank you, Martin. Most important. <laughs>
1: It is funny though, like how your career maybe actually started. The first big break you got was um, winning uh, Hennessy New Irish Writing. Yeah, it was very important to me. uh, With the story about Eddie Varago, which was the Colonel for um, Cowboys and Indians, your your debut novel. Yeah. Um, What would you say? Like, how important was Hennessy New Irish Writing Um, as a uh, professionally?
0: I mean, I've been very lucky to have lovely things happen to me in my career and you know lovely reviews and best selling books and and prizes sometimes but I I have never had and will never have a day that was as important to me as um, the day my first short story appeared in Hennessy New Irish Writing. It was just such an affirmation it was such a a, a clap on the back um, a signal to keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been living in London for a few years getting nowhere with writing fiction, I mean <clears throat> I would write short stories trudge down to the post office in Lewisham and put them into the post box and by the time I trudged back to the flat it seemed they had already been returned mm-hmm. uh, just getting nowhere at all and I'd given myself a period of three years that where I was going to really give this the mm-hmm. full lash and if I didn't get something published at the end of mm-hmm. the three years that I would go and do something else with my life and very shortly before the three years um, were up, I remember coming in one day and there was a one, a little digital one, flashing on the answering machine. Yeah. And it was Kieran Carty um, phoning from the Sunday Tribune, as it then was in Dublin, saying, we've read your story, Last of the Mohicans, and we're going to publish it. And I can tell you, Martin, in the great, wide city of London, there was no happier boy yeah. than me that night. I, I, I just felt... I don't care if nothing ever happens again. Um, this uh, is, is just such a wonderful affirmation. And as I said, I still think that, and I know many Irish writers have have felt that. And and everybody, you know, feels very sad about the fact that Hennessy have made the decision they have made not mm-hmm. to go forward mm-hmm. um, with the award. But. Um, for for me, it was it was a huge thing. It was the sign that I needed that maybe it's okay to keep going, and I will forever be grateful to, to Hennessey and to Kieran Carty in particular for mm-hmm. um for that that first little clap on the back that yeah. every writer needs.
1: At that time, had you started developing the Last of the Mohicans into what became Cowboys and Indians? I, I kind or?
0: of had and hadn't. You know, I, I had a couple of um drafts of different bits of a book that would involve this this character a young man from dublin mm-hmm. with a mohican haircut mm-hmm. going off to london to to make it in rock and roll but um there were definitely bits and and what i needed was somebody just to give me a green light to say maybe you can um, maybe you can go forward with this maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't mm-hmm. be a complete waste of your life
1: flashing forward if we may to star of the sea um,
0: That's a big flash <laughs> A big flash
1: um, but um, our time is sadly short yeah. um, I do want to get on to talking about Play, your new mm. book but Star of the Sea uh, was a breakthrough book for you, wasn't it? Um, yeah I think uh, the last time we spoke you described it as um, the first book in which you felt that you were completely in control yeah. as, as an author. Would you like to say a little bit more about that? Well, or? I think
0: with my early books, which I'm fond of, you know, I'm fond of all of my books. But, you know, um, the that great television playwright, Dennis Potter, um, gave an interview shortly before he died. Very moving very insightful um, interview where he talked about writing and he said every every author should look back on, on their early works with a kind of affectionate contempt. Um, and it's a beautiful phrase. Mm-hmm. You have to have the affection, yeah. but a little grain of contempt too. And I, <clears throat> I think with my first sort of three or four books, I was learning how to write. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did, my, I did my learning, you know, in public. I did my MA in creative writing by publishing a number of novels. Mm-hmm. And I think they all had things to recommend them and I think they all had problems and the first time I really felt that that I knew what I was doing that I had the kind of authority that you would expect an author to have and if you Mm -hmm. think of it the two words come from the same root, you know we want um, a novelist to be in control of the Mm -hmm. story, we want to be slightly behind them, we want to be catching up We want the sense that they have been all the way down to the end of the story and have come back to tell us.
1: They know where this is going.
0: Yeah, and the first time I had that was with Star of the Sea, and I think the reason was that I took longer to plan it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a couple of years probably in the planning. I planned the architecture of the book very, very carefully, Um, It was a great gift to me, I guess, that I realised early on it would be a long book. And I don't like long books. I'm quite an impatient reader. So if it has to be long, well, then you have to think very carefully about the storytelling structure because it has to have um, a momentum Mm -hmm. that will just kind of draw the reader through. So, So Star of the Sea was kind of structured in such a way that you'd read 50 pages and then something would happen to plunge you into the next 50 yeah. so you're kind of halfway through before you know it so then you just keep going so i planned it for a couple of years very carefully and then i wrote it quite quickly mm-hmm. in a burst of about nine months so again i have probably a um, completely absurd theory that prose takes on uh, the energy at which it's the, the speed uh, at which it's written mm-hmm. so so when something is going to be long i try and write it quickly okay. so that so that it acquires um some of that kind of propulsiveness i i suppose that you'd want the story to have mm-hmm. um so so i i kind of knew what i was doing and um the book came out and i'd never thought that it would be commercially successful i thought that it would be warmly reviewed mm-hmm. and and um that it might end up on university courses about the great irish famine and that it might get shortlisted for a thing or two um, so its commercial success was was a huge surprise,
1: and a lot of that was down to Richard and Judy. Would that be fair to a say? A lot of it was, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, it had just, and a lot of it was down to timing. to the book had just come out in paperback, and and it was selling okay, and mm-hmm. then the Richard and Judy thing started. And from memory, I think Star of the Sea was featured in the first week of that show so it had a huge Mm -hmm. um, audience and the whole kind of television book club thing in Britain was so new
1: Um,
0: I I think in later years, I mean I haven't looked into it but my sense is that the television book clubs' results in terms of sales did not stay what Mm -hmm. they were at Mm -hmm. that point but I I can remember looking at the show that afternoon at at like 5 o'clock having said to my wife Anne-Marie this isn't going to make any difference, like who cares she was very excited about it mm-hmm. and I remember not being uh, so it came on at 5 o'clock and Bob Geldof was one of the reviewers who's a childhood hero of mine so mm-hmm. that in itself was great mm-hmm. Bonnie Greer, whose critical writing I love was the other person, she was great and I just wandered upstairs then afterwards to Amazon and the book was that morning was at, you know 36,000, pretty good for me mm-hmm. at that time and, and just watching over the next 20 minutes, it went from 36,000 up to 20,000, up to 10,000, up to 500. And I was actually sitting in my office watching as it went from 100 to 90 to 20 to number one. <laughs> and I came back downstairs and said to Anne-Marie, yeah, the book's Star of the Sea, a 450-page book about the Irish famine um, is number one in the UK. So I learned a lot from it, you know, that. Um, you should write the book you need to write and it'll find its readership and mm-hmm. they won't all have the audience that Star of the Sea had but the reader will kind of sniff out if you're writing down to them yeah. you know one of the great skills um that people like Marion Keynes have as writers is that they really understand that genre and they mm-hmm. really have an empathy with their reader and they know exactly what they're doing. And the kind of false thing you hear sometimes of people trying to write a bestseller, you're not going to do that because mm-hmm. pe- people will get a sense of that very quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, so Star of the Sea, I suppose, gave me the confidence and security and all of those things to, to approach my writing in a, in a different way. Maybe publish a little bit less often and and try and make every novel as good as it could be, you know.
1: Do you still associate it with um, becoming a father? I think you've said before that um, the cycle of life, whatever, like, you know... Um, rather than the prom and the hall being an impediment, as people have suggested in the past, it was actually an impetus for It was, you. It was a
0: great, great gift to me as a writer. I mean, apart from obviously as a, as a person, it's a wonderful thing to become a parent. But um, I was writing Star of the Sea when James, my first our first son, was born. And um, you know yourself, everybody listening will know becoming a parent um, it deepens your stake in the world. That like things matter in a way that they didn't before. Everything matters. Mm-hmm. So like with my early books, as I said, you know, I just kind of dashed them out, and if they got mixed reviews, it didn't particularly bother me because I just write another one. It just doesn't matter, you know. If Star, if Cowboys and Indians, some people liked it, some people didn't. I just mm-hmm. go home and write another one. But I remember thinking when James was born, um, first of all, that uh, the birth of your children. It's a set of joys, and it's also an intimation of your own mortality mm-hmm. because yeah. things happen. There's a limit to the number of novels that you're going to write. You know, you're probably not going to write another twenty. Mm-hmm. So I started to think, well, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to write something that would make a difference, and I'd like to write a book that would be around for a yeah. while. Most books don't mm-hmm. last, but I remember thinking, I'd like to write something that that kid would be able to read. In 20 years time and that his kids would be able to read and um so i, I just give it you know an extra a drop of my blood mm-hmm. and it 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 brought me to a crossroads i suppose about writing i started to think is this something that you really do care about or is it just passing the time is mm-hmm. it just wanting to see your name on the cover of a book is it just wanting to avoid having another job and um and i, I decided because of because of james no i'm I'm going to give it the full commitment that I can, whatever happens, mm-hmm. so it's like a moment of marriage, you know it's for better or worse then um and 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 you you take what you, what fate deals out to you as as a writer, but I probably wouldn't have done it, and I wouldn't have written that book had it not been for becoming mm-hmm. a parent.
1: you strike me as somebody who maybe thinks um a lot maybe more than most writers about you know the writer's role um, in society. I'm I'm thinking maybe of when you did the the monologues or the essays for for Drive Time on RT, That was kind of very public facing, kind of engagement with um, with society or with people. And then I think you've been an influential reviewer over time. You sort of I think you reviewed for the Irish Times, a Lisa McInerney's debut, I think mm-hmm. Sarah Bohm as well. Yeah. Um, this idea of kind of putting a ladder down or of, you know, um, playing a role in the community, if you like, and then most recently, um, perhaps most importantly, as Frank McCord, Professor of Creative Writing at University of Limerick. Mm. Would you want to say something about that, about, you know, being a writer, not just being somebody who sits at home and writes a book?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I would have no no hesitation about saying that uh, Well, I won't put it in general terms. I won't say what writers want. What I want is to have an audience. You know, if you're a storyteller, I think you want to have an audience. So if somebody asks you to write for the radio, that's a whole different audience from writing a novel like Redemption Falls, which is Mm -hmm. a very, very literary book, belligerently literary, um, um, some would say. So if somebody asks you to do that, then you do it as well as as well as you can I mean the reviewing side of my life which I don't do very often I, I would hasten to say um, that the only thing I ever did for for Sarah Baum and Lisa McInerney is notice how brilliant they are but I do think yeah I suppose there's a bit of an obligation on you yeah if you think there's a young writer out there who's really special mm-hmm. and who's, who's who's got something that other people don't have I think you should help if you can if it's if if you help by 1%, mm-hmm. um, then, I, then I think you should. I mean, sometimes when I've been asked to, to review a book, which I, I don't really like doing, I don't like reviewing much, but I sometimes do ask myself, God, if I send this back now to Martin Doyle, who's he going to give it to instead of me? You know, like I have the power or I might actually be able to help the person and somebody else m- might, might not. So I don't do it often, but I'm very happy to have... Um, just shone a light on Mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. whose careers would have been brilliant anyway um and then the teaching side of my life you know i i I love i get so much from teaching i like to be around young writers i like their energy and they keep you very fresh i mean you mentioned earlier the interview that you sent me this morning and that was done in 1991 Mm -hmm. i'm reading the words of this young fella saying you know the purpose of the novel isn't to entertain or to be beautiful or anything like that it's to change the world and i mean there are moments as a 56 year old martin i don't kind of feel that anymore you know but when you're around young writers yeah it's just good to be plugged into that sort of energy and you read stuff that you wouldn't read otherwise because you're reading stuff that um that they're reading um mm-hmm. i i like to have colleagues you know i 've always done other things as well as sit in a room and write novels i 've as you mentioned, written for the radio i 've written stage plays i 've written film scripts. I think it 's good for a writer just to get out of the office mm-hmm. uh, from time to time it 's a slightly unreal way for a grown up to spend time yeah. you know sitting in a room by yeah. yourself a ma- bit of making a stuff a up
1: better to remove
0: yeah and, and you know you can kind of forget to wash yourself <laughs> and you can forget how to talk to people. Mm. Um, I remember the last time I was in this office a couple of years ago now I was probably in the middle of writing that book mm-hmm. and, and, and I hadn't actually had a meeting with anybody for a couple of weeks. I, we had a meeting about something, you mm-hmm. and I. And I remember thinking, "Geez, I, I actually have to make an effort mm-hmm. like, to make conversation with this person because I spend a lot of time yeah. in a room mm-hmm. by myself. So I, in Limerick you know, I'm so fortunate like my one of my most important colleagues is Donal Ryan, mm-hmm. who is, for my money, you know, the consistently, you know, the finest Irish novelist of his generation. And it's just great for me that I get to see Donal mm-hmm. um, every week. I work with Sarah Moore Fitzgerald, the young adult writer. The poet Martin Dyer is, is with us this year. And I, I, it's just a great sense of um, mission and purpose. Um, I'm the first person to do this job. You know, UL only set up their creative writing department five years ago. So it's mm-hmm. the only job I've ever applied for because the only kind of teaching I ever really wanted to do was where I could sort of shape yeah. a programme. And in its own way, it's very creative and satisfying. I, I, I love it. I don't love it the way I love writing. Mm-hmm. And I think a very important thing about our programme in UL is that we are all practising writers. I mm-hmm. think it's really important for the students... To be around that, they have got so much from from seeing what happens when Donal is is finishing proofs, yeah, and and, and sending stuff out and doing interviews and and you know all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, over the last year, while I've been finishing Shadow Play, it's been great to be able to talk to them about that. So I think there are things about our program that are that are different, and it's 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 lovely to have it. It gives some structure to your life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the kind of main. and it's good not to be thinking about yourself all the time. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa, choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary.
1: Nigel, could we hear an excerpt from
0: Shadowplay? Victoria Cottage Hospital, near Deal, Kent, 20th of February 1908. My dearest Ellen, please excuse this too-long-delayed response. As you'll gather from the above, I'm afraid I've been not too well. Money worries and the strain of overwork weakened me over this wretched winter until I broke down like an old cab horse on the side of the road. What's good is that, they say, little permanent damage is done. My poor espoused saint has moved down here from London too to a little boarding house on the seafront and comes in on the bus to read to me daily so we can continue irritating one another contentedly as only married people can. We enjoy quarrelling about little things like sandwiches and democracy. I'm still able to typewrite, as you see. Last night I had a dream of you-know-who. He was in Act Three of Hamlet. And somehow you came to me too like a rumour of trees to a tired bird. And so here I am, late but in earnest. How wonderful to know you're putting together your memoir and how frightening that prospect will be for untold husbands. You ask if I have anything left in the way of lyceum programmes, costume sketches, drawings, so on. I'm afraid I haven't anything at all in that line of country. Almost everything I had, I stuffed into my reminiscences and then turfed the lot into the British Library once the book was published, apart from a couple of little personal things of no interest or use to anyone. What I do have is the enclosed, a clutch of diary pages and private notes I kept on and off down the years and had begun working up into a novel, somewhat out of my usual style, or perhaps a play, I don't know. Since you appear in the pages yourself, you'll find looking through the ruins a curiosity at any rate and it might raise a smile or two at the old days of fire and glory, the madness of that time. Much of it is in Pittman shorthand, which I think you know. If you don't, a local girl in the village will, or there is Miss Minniter's secretarial service near Covent Garden. I can see the street clear as daylight, but can't think of its name. You may remember her. She is in the directory. Some of it is in a code even its maker has forgotten. I wonder what I can have been trying to hide and from whom. Well then, old thing, my treasured friend... It is a holy thought to imagine my words moving through your heart's heart, because then something of me will be joined with something of you, and we will stand in the same rain for a time under the one umbrella. All fond love to you and your family, my dearest golden star. And happy birthday next week, I think. Ever your Bram.
1: Tell me then about Shadow Play. Like to me, it struck me as having elements of both star of the sea in terms of its its structure it's it's quite a big book and um it's not as straightforward one narrative there's it's drawn from different sources like letters and journals and so forth um but it also reminds me obviously very strongly of ghost light Mm -hmm. um which was the the your imagined story of the relationship between Singh and Molly Allgood. Here, uh, Shadow Play, it's a story of Bram Stoker and his relationship with another actress, Ellen Terry, and the actor and theatre impresario, Henry Irving. Mm. Let me put it over to you in your own words. Tell me what well, Shadow Play is about.
0: I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. I mean, it is, it's interesting that you make those comparisons with Star of the Sea um, and with Ghostlight. Uh, because there are actually very specific references um, in the book, which not everyone will spot. But there, there, there's an interview at one point with the great actor Henry Irving, and mm-hmm. it's been conducted by an American journalist whose name is Grantly Dixon. Mm-hmm. And um, nerds <laughs> will spot that Grantly Dixon is kind of the central narrator of *Star of the Sea*. Mm-hmm. Um, then later in the book, a section set in 1912, Bram Stoker is living in a uh, a boarding house, I suppose, a nursing home mm-hmm. for for um, people who are um, have fallen a bit on hard times, and that's on a street in London called Brickfields Terrace. And in my mind, it is the same building that Molly Allgood uh, lives in in um, in Ghostlight. So you're okay. a perceptive um, mm-hmm. reader, and in my mind, I, I did want to tie the three books together. Um, so Bram Stoker has been with me all my life. Um, from when I was six or seven, he's the first Irish author I ever heard of, and he's the first Irish author I loved. And the reason is that um, when I was a young kid, um, my father's parents parents are from Francis Street in the Liberties, mm-hmm. but by the time I was born, they had moved to Keeper Road in Crumlin, and my mother's parents lived on the same road. It was a great pleasure for mm-hmm. a young kid. The four of my grandparents lived on the same road. And sometimes in the summers, I would go and stay with them for weekends or a week. And my maternal grandmother was a great lover of ghost stories and a great teller of ghost stories. And she loved telling us about um, Marsh's library being haunted. And that if you walked three times around the pepper canister church, the devil Uh, would appear and she had a great stock of stories set in English stately homes. The Brown Lady of Raynham Hall was one, the first ghost that was ever photographed as she used to tell us but my favourite of all of her stories concerned a relative of her own who um, must have been an uncle by marriage or a cousin by marriage and in Victorian Dublin this man had been a lamplighter which I thought was a beautiful job and a beautiful word. Mm. They were known, there's a spe- specific Dublin word, glimmer men. Mm-hmm. And they were the guys who went around and lit the gas lights. Beautiful job. And she used to tell us the story that one night this man, this lamplighter, had been on his beat around the north inner city of Dublin and had paused on Church Street, which is just off the quays where St. Mickens Church mm-hmm. is. And he had seen an athletic looking prosperous-looking, well-dressed man on the street outside the church looking up at the steeple. It's Mm -hmm. not really a steeple. It's more like a a tower. And assuming he had been lost, he went over and asked, you know, it's a very poor neighbourhood and he asked if this man was lost. Mm -hmm. And um, they got chatting and the man said he wasn't lost. He was interested in the church, the fact that there were mummies preserved in the basement, all of that. The two of them got chatting and according to my grandmother, they exchanged names And this man said his name was Abraham Stoker and he worked in Dublin Castle Mm. and he wrote ghost stories and that was that. And the the lamplighter over the coming years would see him from time to time. And my grandmother used to love suggesting that the last time um, the lamplighter had seen him was on an April night in 1912 on the same street in um, Dublin, just outside St. Mickens Church and that he'd then gone home and read the newspaper and seen that Bram Stoker had died in London the previous day. Mm -hmm. So it's a tall Mm -hmm. story, Mm -hmm. the tallest of the Mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. But to hear a story like that when you're six or eight kind of makes you feel, wow, I'm connected with this guy Mm -hmm. who, whether the story is true or not, did walk the streets um, of Dublin. Mm -hmm. And I, I just was so fascinated with him as a young teenager the first kind of fictions that I ever tried to write um, were very influenced by Stoker and were very kind of gothic and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And then the more I looked into his his actual story, the more fascinating he became to me. Because Stoker was a person of intense um, privacy. We don't know much about him. And we don't celebrate him in the same way that we celebrate Yeats mm-hmm. and and wild and sing and the fact that he wasn't interested in Ireland and the cultural revival and all of that. He'd lived in Dublin at such an amazing time of mm-hmm. fervour, yeah. cultural nationalism but what he wanted to do a bit like Eddie Virago in mm-hmm. Cowboys and Indians was get on the boat to London and yeah. be in showbiz mm-hmm. so, so that really interested me that he in some ways was a genuine outsider, a mm-hmm. genuine rebel So he went to London. He was a theatre manager for most of his life. He worked with this um, tempestuous, mesmeric figure, Henry Irving, the greatest Shakespearean actor of his day, and with Ellen Terry, who uh, was, I suppose, the first acting celebrity, the Mm -hmm. highest paid woman in England. Um, And the three of them had this amazingly ardent, intense, passionate friendship for which Mm -hmm. there is only the word love. Um, so, so I just thought that that story could be the springboard for a novel that would be beautiful and amusing and an adventure in language and mm-hmm. all of that. But that might say something about, about the nature of, of love and sexuality mm-hmm. and magic and what happens in the backstage of a theatre. Yeah. And, and everything about Stoker, to me, is, is about that. He, he wrote an a unforgivably long um, memoir, of Henry Irving, where he tells us it's like a snowstorm of facts that that Stoker hides in. Mm. Every first night at the Lyceum, he tells you who was there, what was on the menu, the wines, um, what the reviews were like the next day, and then he goes on to the next. First night, he never reveals anything so about himself. the opposite
1: himself. of a, an author's eye for detail, the telling yeah. detail. Yeah,
0: So that creates, I suppose, all of those all of those silences create a space that's very inviting mm-hmm. for the storyteller. So I would want to emphasise, um, it's a work of fiction. I, I've read, mm-hmm. you know, the standard biographies of, of um, Bram Stoker and Henry Irving and Alan Terry. And and they are of course you know mentioned in the acknowledgements and people in search of reliable yep. information that's mm-hmm. that's where they should go. This this is a novel. It's my take on them. Um, you don't have to have read Dracula at all yeah. um, to to read Shadowplay. But I, I, I suppose I was just interested in how that um, notion of somebody being in a situation that they are drawn to by instinct. Wanting to write the book, always Stoker always wanted to write a book that would be a big success. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't in his lifetime, which again is is one of the kind of delicious and inviting ironies for a novelist. Stoker died having not really known much literary success, mm-hmm. and it was on, it was only ten years later that the movies discovered Dracula. Um, so so he he ended up writing a novel that everybody in the world would hear of. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most immortal characters of all time Um, few fictional characters really have an afterlife Mm. like the Count Um, so it would be nice to think that Bram is somewhere out there aware of of what he achieved Mm -hmm. but in some ways it's not really about them it's about what's going on in the background
1: Was it always your intention to kind of um, explore the kind of stew of ingredients which would kind of cook In his head, and that you could kind of see, you know, this was the kind of like the origin story of Dracula. The elements, like say, the Jack the Ripper murders happening in the background, that bloodlust, the tyrannical Henry Irving as a kind of a the lord of the manor sort of thing. Mm,
0: It's an old idea that Irving might have been a prototype um, for Dracula. Mm -hmm. People said it um, at the time. I suppose. In truth, what I wanted to do was to both suggest the ingredients that make up the novel and also to question them as mm-hmm. a working novelist myself. I don't think it's as simple as that you see somebody and they become the blueprint for one of your characters. Um, I think it's more like a process of osmosis. Mm-hmm. You, you, Something that somebody might say on the bus one day, you might take that sentence and give it to somebody else. I mean, I, I'm very aware, for example, just thinking about this today, there's a particular scene in the book where Ellen Terry has to confront somebody, and it was very important to me that she be a strong, smart, kind of funny character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I struggled with the scene, and I ended up thinking, how would such and such a real-life person yeah. handle that situation? Mm-hmm. How would X handle it? How would Y handle it? And finally, I thought, how would Patty Smith handle it, it who's somebody who I've admired since I was a teenager mm-hmm. so I thought, okay, I'll, so, so today's version will just be, I'll write that as though it was Patti Smith yeah. and that's the version that I ended up with, so you okay. take bits from all mm-hmm. over the place and you absorb bits that you don't even know about and I think that's what actually goes into mm-hmm. the stew so stew is really the wrong word because that would suggest a recipe mm-hmm. um, It's it's more a kind of very random Gathering and just being open to the world, and I think that's what Bram was. Mm-hmm. You know, I, he, he strikes me as just somebody who is in the backstage, watching and listening mm-hmm. all of the time, and not even aware of having a process um, or what the process would be if he had it. I think he he was just open to the world.
1: Mm-hmm. How good uh, a novel is Dracula itself, in your opinion?
0: Well, I love Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, it has its moments of kind of clunking self parody. But um, one of the really striking things about it is um, its modernity. I mean, Stoker was very far from the first person to write a novel that had a vampire in it. But it's so brilliant that he sets the vampire in the world of the reader. I mm-hmm. mean, we, we kind of think mistakenly that Dracula is set in Transylvania. Mm-hmm. But in fact, most of it is set in England. Mm Dracula is a great novel of England. um, And Stoker came up with the notion that the vampire is not living in some medieval castle very far away. He's living in an abandoned townhouse on Piccadilly. Mm -hmm. He could be walking past you at any hour of the day or night. He could be in disguise. That's where you're tempted to think some of the ideas about Jack the Ripper came Mm in. Um, Dracula includes um, telephones, sound recording, blood transfusion, women's magazines. You can see Stoker trying to make it absolutely as up-to-date mm-hmm. as possible. So I, I just love um, the modernity of it. And then the style, you know, that kind of epistolary mm-hmm. style is something that's been with me since my novel The Salesman, which mm-hmm. I think is my third um, novel. It's, it's, it's marvellous how Stoker teaches you that uh, you can vary the textures of a book. It doesn't have to be one authorial voice, although you can have that, but you could also have two. You could have newspaper articles, you could have ballads, you could have songs, you can have diaries. Mm -hmm. There's a narrator in this book who's a ghost, whose kind of whole even grammar and punctuation is is very far away from Bram's very meticulous diary-keeping. So he he was the writer who kind of taught me when I was getting going myself that um, texture uh, in a novel, the music of a novel is, is... as important as the as the plot mm-hmm.
1: it's that kind of polyphonic thing of
0: yeah, yeah, that it should be an experience almost of um of sound. It should be like going mm-hmm, to a concert mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and some moments are um, guitar solos, and some moments are silence mm-hmm. and some are symphony orchestra, but use them all you know yeah. don 't restrict yourself to one mm-hmm, voice mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. you could do all of these things, so I think I really learned that from stoker there's some very
1: funny passages in the novel, actually. Um, took a photograph earlier on of there's one where, um, Stoker goes to see Irving and Irving says something along the lines of, you know, there is a presence that I sense with you. He wishes you yeah. to be gone or something. Yeah. Um, does that come naturally to you, or does that kind of, is that something that you need to sort of work in if you like, um, when you're when you're writing those kind of maybe comic riffs or whatever?
0: Um, I think well, I always try and have some comedy in a book, I mean it depends I mean even in Star of the Sea, which is a very dark book, there's a sequence where Pius Mulvey runs away to London and it's very colourful and clamorous and and noisy and some funny things happen to him Um, it's just an attempt to use the full register I guess with this book it's also that um, there's something kind of preposterous and ponderous um, about the Gothic you know, the sort of there is a standard issue Gothic Victorian London novel Mm. that is going to have fog and it's going to have the Ripper Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and if there's a way to kind of puncture that a bit, yeah, yeah, that the characters almost know um, how ridiculous the Mm -hmm, situation mm -hmm. is sometimes there's a scene where Bram has to go and talk to Henry Irving in the dressing room the first night it's Hamlet and the theatre is full and all this work has gone into it and Irving has decided at the last minute that he doesn't want to go on. He's been mm. having strange visions. And um, Bram remarks on how appropriately Gothic this is. And he says the lightning was flickering outside like the bastards ingratitude. So, So it was just to say look to the reader, OK, we're going to play this little game. We're going to mm. believe in the Gothic yeah. thing. But at the same time, yeah. have some gentle mm-hmm. um, fun with it as well. And, and also it was just kind of dictated by the characters. I wanted Ellen Terry to be funny. I mm-hmm. wanted her to be able to um, take the piss out of Irving being so kind of preposterous. Mm-hmm. And my experience of actors who, who I've been fortunate enough to work with a few times myself over the years, they are witty and they mm-hmm. are um, performative in how they talk. Yeah. And 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 the, there's a kind of camp and a humor um, the can be um, very mischievous and very very funny and also very consoling and uplifting mm-hmm, at other times mm-hmm. so it's, it's just always to try and find the particular way that characters in a book talk and um, that's how the three of them presented mm-hmm. themselves to me.
1: As well as the humour there is like a, a darkness or a sadness perhaps in the novel which is the kind of if you like troubled sexuality um, of say Bram, he's He's, you know, he's married. He has children, but, you know, there he has um, homosexual longings or whatever. Which, you know, he.
0: Well, I don't know about knew. that. No, I mean, my, d- d- I had a list of sort of words that I wouldn't include uh, in the book, and um, I'm just interested in that phrase about the love that dare not speak its name. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the world of the three characters at the time is that they love. Uh, Alan Terry, Bram, and Henry Irving, that they had this very ardent, intense love, that they didn't feel a need to label, and that we don't know much about. And my sense—I could be completely wrong—my mm-hmm. sense of their view of sexuality is that sexuality is a kind of omniscient uh, or omnipresent um, mm. current. It's a bit like radio waves. Mm-hmm. I was going to say sexuality, is, it's, it's a bit like broadband, except that, you know, that would, that would suggest that sexuality in certain parts of rural Ireland is only intermittently available. Mm-hmm. Um, but that um, a current of sexuality runs between people almost all of the time, so that a smile could be sexual, mm-hmm. a conversation about the weather could be sexual. But there's a moment in the book where Bram says to one of the younger characters who is gay, that love is a lot more than who puts what where, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that that's my notion of of, of the three of them, that um, they were just able to plug into that Mm -hmm. current and didn't particularly feel a a reason to call it something. Mm -hmm. And, And in some ways, you know, I noticed this when I was researching Redemption Falls, which is a novel set during the American Civil War. Relationships between men... I think we're were a bit more open mm-hmm, at that time mm-hmm. than they became subsequently. There are very striking photographs of American Civil War soldiers mm-hmm. about to go into battle with their arms around each other or holding hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I think men were capable of expressing um, tenderness and concern and love mm-hmm. for, for each other. Um, and nobody got too hung up about it. So, so I think it may have been that... Um, with with Ellen and Henry and Bram. I don't know, but peop, peop, scholars have debated this for many years. Mm-hmm. There's a remarkable letter written by Bram as a young man to Walt Whitman where th- some of the language he uses, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's thanking Walt Whitman for everything you have mm-hmm. given to people of my sort yeah. and I felt I was alone mm-hmm. and when I read your work. I mm-hmm. can see that I wasn't um so so we we, we just uh, we don't know. And there is
1: a scene in the novel where he's warned off by a policeman from visiting um, a club in Soho.
0: Visiting, yeah. But sure, we've all been to a gay bar in Soho, Martin. I'm sure mm-hmm. you have yourself over the years.
1: Well, I've been turned away from one for um, trying to get a late drink on a Friday night because... Madam
0: Jojo's, I, I, mean, I think. I it was great.
1: in Hammersmith, actually, yeah. but... Um, no matter.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that was my my notion was just that um, that, that the three of them looked at mm-hmm. sexuality in a different way to mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Hence the title, I suppose. That it's it's more about what's happening in the shadows than what's happening in the full glow of the limelight. Mm-hmm. So it's not about what we call something; it's about love.
1: Were there. I think you've said before that when you're working on a historical novel, you do the research and then you put it away in a drawer and then you allow your imagination free reign. Mm. And I just wonder when you were doing the research, were there things that you discovered that, I don't know, fascinated you or whatever? Like, I think I remember with Ghostlight, mm-hmm. there was the fact that, say, Molly Allgood had appeared in Hitchcock's uh, first talkie, Juno um, and the Peacock. Um, but there's no room for that in in yeah. the novel. Yeah. And maybe likewise with this one here. I just wondered were there things that you discovered about Bram Stoker that you know could have made it, but for whatever reason didn't didn't fit. The,
0: probably the lots of them. Um, probably lots of them that mainly have to do with the afterlife of of the book. You know, mm-hmm. I I, I, th- I think it's really fascinating that you know ten years after Stoker's death, mm-hmm. um, it's a German film company that discovered this forgotten novel by some Irish guy. They probably mm-hmm. thought he was an English guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Dracula. And they film it as Nosferatu. And they think no one will ever find out because mm-hmm. um, it's been so forgotten. And unfortunately for them, um, it hasn't been forgotten by everyone because um, amazing woman, um, Florence Balcombe, to whom Bram was married, mm-hmm. um, still very much alive. And she just makes it her mission Mm -hmm. for the rest of her life to be an absolute pain in the arse um, to these people who've pirated her husband's book. And she drags them through the courts and Mm -hmm. wins Mm -hmm. and establishes Mm -hmm. very important principles of copyright that still um, exist. So she was a very interesting person to find out about. Mm -hmm. A remarkable woman in her own right. um, As a young woman, she had been engaged to Oscar Wilde. and when the relationship broke up, uh, Wilde's parting gift to her um, rather piquantly for Dracula fans was a crucifix. So so Wilde is in the background of her life and his. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an interesting thing to discover, but had to be kind of kept to a minimum. Yep. I suppose one of the most interesting real life things has to do with the whole, um, there's a subplot running through the book which is to do with copyright. I'm making this sound really (laughs) knuckle-grippingly exciting, I know. Um, Thrilling stuff. Um, At the time, you couldn't copyright a novel. You could only copyright a stage play. And so none of Stoker's early works were copyright. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's kind of, you know, married couples sometimes have a recurring tiff, and the recurring tiff in this book is Mrs. Stoker saying, jeez, you want to go and copyright those books? So Mm -hmm. finally, with Dracula... He decides okay I'm going to copyright this and the only way you can do it mm-hmm. is to perform a stage version yeah. of, the, of the novel. Mm-hmm. So Bram you know tears out pages from the galleys. I think these were recently discovered mm-hmm. um, pastes them together. It's kind of 11 o'clock on a Monday morning at the Lyceum Theatre. Yeah. The actors haven't rehearsed. There's no scenery. There's no lighting. The cleaning ladies mm-hmm. are kind of Around the place and the carpenters in the middle of it all. This great masterpiece of world literature is about to be copyrighted yeah. and nobody even knows, including mm-hmm. the poor author himself. So I would have loved to be in the Lyceum Th- Theatre mm-hmm. um that morning. So that was a fascinating real life thing to just to discover and mm-hmm. play with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: You told me once that um when you're writing you have the reader in the room with you, and sometimes you please them and give them what they want, and sometimes you play with them and misdirect them or or take it somewhere else yeah. um Could you give me an example in shadow play of of how you uh dealt with the reader or had the reader in mind as well like I, I put could. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I could but I might resist the temptation to because then the reader would know uh, what I was doing but but, but 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 certainly um there there are there are some passages that have to do with a a period in London when the ripper is active mm-hmm. um when the rea- the reader is being sent a particular way mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I want them to go uh, and and um they might or might not twig what's what's actually happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but um But no, (laughs) far from that. Thank you, Joe. You've been so reasonable up until now.
1: Um, You admitted having a crush on Molly Allgood um, sings Mm. actress lover in Ghostlight. I just wondered how chaste were your feelings um, for Ellen Terry on this occasion?
0: Um, I think my my sense is that everybody who ever met Ellen Terry fell head over heels Mm. in love with her um, for a week. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, And and I'm sure I I may have been similarly um, smitten. I mean, she's an incredibly impressive woman. And from a writer's point of view, just such a relief and a joy to write about a woman in Victorian England who, who has money and power. And influence, and it kind of matters what she thinks. And she has the first motor car, mm-hmm. and and she has a house in the country, and a flat in London, and all of that. She's very, very far from kind of received notions of what a Victorian woman character was like. And and she just she brought the book to life. Really, I mean, mm-hmm. the book started its life as about the two lads. Yeah. Um, and I wrote a radio play called The Vampire Man, which is about. That relationship a few years ago for the BBC, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was grand. You know, it was fine. But I, I, when it came to writing the novel, as soon as Ellen arrived, there's a bit early on in the book where she starts to comment on the action. I just felt this kind of crackle of electricity going through, and the crackle of possibility that mm-hmm. maybe everything the two guys are doing, all the kind of blokish stuff. That they're doing can be undercut by this other voice, and that the energy of the three voices together, kind of clashing against each other, would really cause the sparks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to fly. So I, I owe the book to Ellen Terry, really. You know, yeah. it, it wouldn't be the book it is. Um, it changes it, a
1: bit it, maybe from the Dresser to Jules de Gim or something like that, or.
0: Um, yeah, I guess I, I wouldn't. Now I, I, I just want to avoid categorizing sure. too too much, but um, it's a. Uh, to me she's a very central presence in the book and the coda at the end of the book is kind of told pretty much from her point of view mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's very important to me um, her reframing of the story mm-hmm.
1: what about the epigraph at the, the start of the book that's by Ellen Terry's son mm. um, which I'm paraphrasing but essentially in every being who lives there is a second self very little known to anyone, the best part of you, your secret self. Mm. Um, would you like to say a little bit about why you chose that as uh, the epigraph for Shadow Well, Play? first
0: of all, I think it's the key to the book. I think that what Bram is doing all the way through the book is discovering another self. Mm-hmm. It's a great trope of Victorian literature, and people had great unease about it, of course, as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and the picture of Dorian Gray, all of that. But I think actually the reason we have storytelling, the reason we write or read, is that we know we contain other selves. And just to contain oneself gets very tiring. Mm -hmm. It's, It's very exhausting being us sometimes. You know, you've got to put down the weight of being us. And through fiction, you get to have that kind of very radical adventure of seeing the world through the eyes of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, it's just a notion of um, fealty and respect for that idea that we contain other selves. If we didn't, life would be Mm -hmm. really unbearable. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful sentence in Ulysses, and again, like yourself, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, um, every life is in many days day after day we encounter giants, ghosts thieves wives, sisters old men, brothers in love uh, but we always encounter ourselves and that's true of reading I think, that's why we go to fiction, we want to have an experience of another version of the self Um, so that whole idea I guess is just at the Mm centre of of Ghost Light and when I saw it crystallised so neatly by someone who 's ellen terry 's son, mm-hmm. I thought yeah i 'm just going to going to grab that. That would be a beautiful epigraph mm-hmm, for a book mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: You said once before that you were keen to get out of the rut of finding Ireland so fascinating. Mm. Um, I guess here um, you 've achieved that in terms of getting out of Ireland by um, following Bram Stoker from dublin to to london it 's a route that you took yourself as a young man. Um, I'm just wondering in this time of Brexit, that awful buzzword, um or reality, that whole idea of, you know, being Irish in England, um, um how was it do you think for, for Bram, would he have seen it as, you know, leaving one country for another in the sense that he was, you know, from an Anglo Irish Protestant background? Would he have seen that as going from the periphery to the centre rather than you know, being an Irish man in England, do you think? What's yeah, what's uh, no, I, I
0: do think that. I think, I mean, Br- Bram was, you know, a home ruler, mm. but but I think he would have regarded himself um, in the same way as he... He was a home ruler rather
1: than a unionist, was
0: he? Yeah. Mm. Um, I think he, he, similarly to encompassing other dualities, perhaps, um, he, he was one of the many Irish people at the time who would have regarded himself as Irish and British. Mm-hmm. Um he worked for the British government, you know, at, at Dublin Castle. He had occasion to visit London, you know, the capital mm-hmm. at the time. Um, of course, one of the awful things that had happened to Lon- to Dublin at that time was that after the Act of Union, D- Dublin kind of ceased to matter and mm. it became this kind of backwater. And a lot of pe- people who owned um, posh houses in mm-hmm. Mountjoy Square and places like that, just removed. some yeah. of them just went, literally mm-hmm. turned threw the key away and left. Um, so it became this place of kind of crusty elegance, but also pitiless squalor, mm-hmm. and a place that didn't matter very much. There's a real sense um, I have a sense of Bram kind of walking around Dublin on a Tuesday or Wednesday night with nothing happening and mm-hmm. this is there in the early pages of the book. It's not like being in a capital city. Everything's closed, everything's locked it doesn't really matter you're not going to do anything because it mm-hmm. wouldn't matter if you did mm-hmm. um, so I, I think the magnetism of London yeah. would have been the magnetism of a country person going to the capital mm-hmm.
1: um, And what next, Joe? Are you already working on something yeah. else? Or? I am,
0: yeah. I'm writing um, a novel which is a um, Loosely based again on a real person, another fascinating fellow um, is Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, oh, yeah, who's the priest from Count County Kerry, of yeah, the Vatican. yeah. So I was in Rome recently doing some research for that, and mm-hmm. uh, amazing man, amazing story. And um,
1: there was a film, made,
0: yeah. There's there? a not Gregory very good Peck, film, it? yeah. It's Gregory Pe- Gregory Peck doing his Kerry accent. <laughs> uh, it's great that it was made because Hugh O'Flaherty was a wonderful man and um, a person of immense courage. Mm-hmm. And I never realised until I went to Rome recently on this research trip, being a priest would not have saved you. The Gestapo in Rome uh, murdered two priests mm-hmm. um, who had been assisting the partisans. So he had immense kind of personal, moral courage um, and was just a very likable man in other ways. He loved uh, playing golf and going Mm -hmm. to the opera and, you know, wasn't a crusader in that sense, but just quietly, people reckon, saved um, six or 7,000 lives uh, during the Second World War and then went back to live in Kerry. Mm -hmm. And I just have his kind of voice in my head at the moment, right at this moment, telling me to shut up (laughs) and not say anything more about it. (laughs) Um, in his, Kerry, his lovely mellifluous carry accent, um he's telling me now that he, he can't wait to read shadow play uh-huh.
1: <laughs> one last question. Um, there are kind of walk on parts then for um a couple of other um Irish writers in Shadow play mm. um Oscar Wilde and Shaw, whose nicknamed Dreary O'Leary. yeah could you tell me a little bit more about about them?
0: Um, Shaw is I suppose um, uh, either the running joke of the book or a kind of Godot like figure in the book. He keeps threatening to show up and he Mm -hmm. never Mm -hmm. quite does. Well I shouldn't say he never quite does because again I don't want to tell the reader too much about it Um, I suppose it's just that what the kind of storytelling that Bram and Irving and Ellen believe in has to do with kind of spectacle and Mm -hmm. magic and the darkness and the other world and ghosts and phantoms and all of that mm-hmm. and I, I think Shaw uh, and, and his, his kind of Ibsen like interest in the real world which is extremely admirable mm-hmm. and you know it's what the 21 year old me who was interviewed in the paper that you sent me this morning would mm-hmm. have been very pro-Shaw um, but after a certain amount of time you want a little bit of the magic mm-hmm. a, as well so so I suppose it's just that Bram and particularly Irving um, that is not their kind of theatre they want spectacle and magic, they want to kind of wow um, the audience mm-hmm. and and Irving can't get over this notion in Shaw that we're going to pay money and go to a theatre and see real people yeah. uh, and he says it would be like going along to Royal Ascot hoping to see um, thoroughbreds and you see two mules butting heads in a ditch mm-hmm. um, and uh, he, he feels, God, like real life is bad enough without having to pay to see it in a theatre and um, so, so it's just a way of emphasising that, that the theatre and the storytelling in shadow play for those three characters is all about mm-hmm. colour and costumes mm-hmm. and giving the audience an experience um, rather than just something mm-hmm. to think about.
1: It is interesting you use the word magic uh, there though because you did use magic in that interview back in the day as well when you were talking about the magic in relationships which you know, is maybe you know, one of your strengths as a writer to kind of explore... You know, in minute detail, that kind of the interplay of, you know, of just you know humans and uh, in friendship or in love, and you know that is a through line if you like in in your writing from the beginning.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Irving says in this book that uh, friendship for him is a matter of recognition, and. You know, when I met you, Bram, he says, I I felt we'd met before. Mm. And it's the weirdest thing. Something like that can't happen. But every human being alive has had that experience. There are occasional people who come into our lives where there's just that immediate Mm -hmm. connection. And Mm -hmm. it just adds sweetness to life. Mm -hmm. But it is occasional. And I suppose um, since, since the story is a record of the exceptional that's that's what it should be but yes i mean i'm very interested always in um the capacity of love to redeem loss and suffering and painful childhood and all of that which Mm -hmm. bram has you know that it's not that it's not all bad i mean sebastian barry has a beautiful line where he says um it's not all knives and daggers and and it isn't and i suppose a novel I think, should ultimately be on the side of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's what I've tried to do with most of them, I think.
1: OK. All right, Joe, listen, thank you so much for coming in. It's a great in. pleasure. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yeah, I could talk to you all day, but, we, but we sort of have now, so let's <laughs> stop.
1: Thank you for listening to the Irish Times Book Club podcast. Happy reading.